day stars shine down on me let your love shine through me in the night day stars shine down on me let your love shine through me in the night oh jesus shine down on me let your love shine through me in the Great. Thank you, Teresa. Great song, and appreciate her testimony as well. Good to see Sherry back there uh, after about with sickness, and she's back in the back. Good to see her. Good to see all of you this morning. We're looking at Judges chapter 3 today. Judges chapter 3. I heard about, now this is not theologically sound, okay? But I heard about two women that were in the afterlife talking about how they died. And one said, I froze to death. And the other one was like, oh, man, you'll have to tell me about that. And she said, well, I, I died of a heart attack. She said, I, I heard my husband was having an affair. And I was stressing about it big time. She said, I went home. Finally, I saw her car there one day on the way home. So I sped up, got home, and I went in to confront her. I looked, and I looked, and I looked for an hour. I looked for her and never found her. She said, I dropped dead of a heart attack. And the other lady said, if you'd looked in the freezer, we'd both be alive. not a good joke, but it's, uh, I, I couldn't imagine freezing to death, but that's not true, so don't panic. We're looking at Judges chapter 3, and the tradition here is just stand when we read. So if you find that, chapter 3, verse 12, we're going to read verses 12 through 15. We will be preaching the entire chapter. Judges chapter 3, I call this the delivery man. Judges chapter 3, verses 12 and following. And then the children of Israel did evil, and mark this next word again again in the sight of the Lord. <clears throat> and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Now notice the Lord, all capitals, three times in that verse, that's Yahweh. That's the name Yahweh. Uh, if it were L and small letters, it would be master, but this is all caps Yahweh. And he, gathered, <clears throat> and, they, and he gathered unto him the children of Amnon and Amalek and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of the palm trees. And the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, a Benjamite, a man left-handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. God bless us as we take a look in the book for a walk in the world. I just pray today, God, that what I say will be what you want me to say, and that it will speak to hearts. And I don't know the situation in hearts today, but you do. We all need something unique in our own lives, and I pray you'll speak to each one in a special way. We thank you for all that's been done so far, the music and the giving and the song, and we just ask you now to just reign in this service. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
The book of Judges is, is a great book, and it deals with all the times Israel would fall into apostasy, and then they'd repent, and God would deliver them after they were servants of sin. Uh, the word can be translated deliver or rule. It has a wide range of meanings because the judge had a wide range of responsibility. They were like our judges today in that they handed down verdicts, they could decide controversies. They would also be involved in the execution of judgment or vindication of the righteous, like a judge would do today. But we know that they also uh, sometimes were supernaturally empowered. We think of Samson and his great strength, and others, Shamgar, who killed a bunch of people with an ox goat, hundreds of people. We think about that. They were supernaturally empowered by the Spirit of God. And Israel's oppressors would come in and take over a part of the land, and then they would need deliverance. Uh, ultimately, Israel's going to have a judge who is going to rule as a perfect judge, and that's the Lord Jesus, amen? He will rule as a perfect judge. Can you imagine being on this earth during the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years and Jesus is on the throne? Now, we won't sin because we've been changed at the rapture. But when we come back and set up that throne, uh, set up that kingdom, he's on the throne. And he's the only perfect judge who will judge flawlessly. We read that in, the, in Isaiah chapter 11. Judges starts with the death of Joshua. It goes all the way to the time of Saul, the first king. It overlaps with several books, Psalms. A lot of Psalms were written during this time. It was written by Samuel. Uh, it was written about a thousand years before Christ by Samuel, and we know that Samuel was uh, the king at the same time Samson was a judge. So there's a lot of overlap. And a lot of people think that the period of the judges was a, a, a period where judges ruled over the whole nation, but it wasn't like that. They ruled over a portion of the nation and just a section of the nation, because all these different people were scattered all over Israel. There were you know, Philistines, and there were Moabites, and there were Midianites, and they were all in different regions. So different judges battled with different people. We know that uh, there was a time where, where God judged through uh, people of his choice. We call that a theocracy, God judging through men of his choice. And these judges had a lot of authority, but were also supernaturally empowered. The book of Joshua is really a, a picture of total available victory, where judges is more of a picture of potential defeat when we don't fight off our enemy. And of course, we know that as believers, we also have an enemy, and we have to constantly be on guard, and we need to be conquerors by faith. Children of Israel entered the Holy Land to, to get a hold of their inheritance. And when we're saved, Ephesians 1.3 says that we enter into our inheritance and we have uh, spiritual blessings from on high and we need to be conquerors and live a life that's pleasing to God. And so here we have the book of Judges and we, we pick up in verse 12 and Israel had accepted coexistence rather than conquest. Coexistence rather than conquest. Look at chapter 1 verse 28. 1 verse 28, just a page or two before it, it says, And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. 
Now, the word Canaanite applies to a lot of different people groups. The Moabites were Canaanites, the Philistines were Canaanites, the Midianites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites. We're all, we're all Canaanites. The people who lived in Canaan, but the true people uh, of God were the children of Israel. But the Bible says they didn't drive them out. They took tribute from them. Uh, and we find here there's a cycle, a cycle. We find apostasy with the children of Israel, and then we find defeat. They'd go into apostasy, worship idols, coexist with people, love their gods, intermarry, intermingle, and all of a sudden after apostasy, there'd be defeat. Then there was always repentance, and then God would raise a judge to deliver them. We find this through the historical books, through the period of judges, this over and over and over again. Kind of sad, isn't it? And yet, you know what we do as Christians? The very same thing. We get in trouble and, oh, we make all these New Year's resolutions or these commitments to God. Oh, God, I'm in trouble. Bow me out of this trouble. Please help me. And I promise I'll stay in church. I'll witness. I'll help at church. I'll give. I'll, I'll love you, God. And then, you know, God helps us. Helps us get back on our feet and answers our prayer. And then a few months or a few years later, guess what we do? We fall back into that same old rut. And we do the same thing over, and then we find ourselves reaping what we've sowed. Oh, God, here I am again, and this time I mean it, Lord. And that's what Israel did. And we find it started out with, with apathy, with apathy. It's been said that um, for evil to triumph, good men really don't have to do anything. They just do nothing. And that's really where the problem is. We're apathetic. We don't do anything. We don't pray. We don't read our Bibles, and we wonder why we're defeated. So it starts out with apathy, and then next is apostasy. Apostasy, where we are now loving the things of the world. And by the way, the Bible says when you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you, but when you love the world, the Bible says you're cheating on God. James says you adulterers and adulteresses. Know you not that friendship of the world is what? Enmity. In other words, you're an enemy of God when you love the world, and you're, he calls them adulteresses and adulterers. Why? You're cheating on God because you love the things of the world. When you love your truck, and you spend more time with your truck than you spend with God, or your fishing pole or your golf club, you can love a lot of things ahead of God, and that's a, a, a form of apostasy. So it was apathy and then apostasy, then it was anarchy. In chapter 21, verse 25, it said, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And right now, America wants that for our country, sad to say. We want anarchy. Just do what you want to do. We don't need the laws anymore. We don't obey half of them anyway. Yeah. Did you know adultery is still illegal in all 50 states? We don't do anything about it. But think of all the laws we ignore in America. And so we have apathy, and we have apostasy, and we have anarchy. And so here, the children of Israel, they would accept this, and they would go down and defeat to another, another evil leader, another evil country, and then they would repent, and God would bail them out. I think about the judges. There were 13 of them, one woman, Deborah, and 12 men. Only seven of them are really well known. You think of Samson and, and Jephthah, and you think of Deborah and Gideon. And today, we're looking at Ehud, Ehud. And we look back in verse 12, and it says here, and the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. 
He sees everything you do. And he was aware of what was going on. And the Bible says, the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. Eglon's name meant calf. Calf. And he was an idol-worshiping person. And so the Bible says God strengthened him. Now, why would God strengthen this evil king, the king of the Moabites? In fact, the Moabites are some of the worst people in the history of the Holy Land. Remember, Lot had two sons by incest with his daughter, Moab and Ammon. And so the Ammonites and the Moabites were related, and here God strengthens a Moabite king. And what happens? Why does God do that? Well, it reminds us of Nebuchadnezzar. God strengthened Nebuchadnezzar, and he took over the whole world, including Israel. And Israel, for 70 years, they were under the control of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And here now, we find God strengthens Eglon. Now, Moab's only mentioned twice in Scripture in a good way at all. Once, God says in Deuteronomy, don't destroy the Moabites because they're kin. Now remember, Lot was Abraham's nephew, so they were akin to the children of Israel. Another time, David hid his parents in Moab. The only two references that are any good at all to these evil people. They just weren't good people. And so God strengthens Moab. And, and it's hard to understand that, but God quite often strengthens people to get his people on their knees. So it says God strengthened him. Again, why? It tells us why. Because what? Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. So God gives their enemy strength because they're sinning. If you want to strengthen your enemy, just live a life of sin. And, and, and God may oppress you somehow with your enemy. So we have to, we can't, you know, it's hard to live above sin. I said one time, the only way to live above sin is to rent a room above a bar. You know, we, we can't live above sin, but we can sure fight sin. We can sure try hard, and we, we can sure make an attempt to live right. But Israel had given up living right. And I know Christians, a lot of people say, oh, I'm a Christian. And I sometimes want to say, don't say you're a Christian, because that means Christ-like. You can say, well, there was a time when I trusted Jesus, but I don't live for him now. That's probably a better thing to say. Because if you say you're a Christian, what do people expect? They expect you to be an example, to be a person who lives right. And so here, Israel is just not right with God. They're backslidden. And so Moab, the Bible says, defeats Israel. So first of all, we find here Israel's acceptance of idols, and then we find Eglon's alliance with Ammon and Amalek. Now remember the Ammonites, related to them by Lot, and the Amalekites, remember who they were. Esau's grandson was Amalek. All right, remember Jacob and Esau. They'd be enemies after they parted company. Their descendants would be enemies till this day. And Amalek was evil, and he opposed Israel at every opportunity. So here this Moabite king Eglon, he joins forces with the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and the Bible says he joined up with them, and the Bible says and they possessed the city of palms. Now, that's Jericho. Josephus says there were a lot of palms at one time in Jericho. Very few today. I've been there, but it's just not much to see today. But it was called at that time the city of palms. So they've taken over that area. Remember, these are regional people. They didn't take over the whole Holy Land, but they controlled a portion of God's people. 
And I think about all the different judges. I was reading, I have a list here of the seven good judges, how Shamgar fought with the Philistines and Gideon with the Midianites and Jephthah with the Ammonites and Samson with the, with the Philistines, as one kid said, the Finkelsteins. And we, oh, Othniel fought with the Mesopotamians. And, and they, these, these men were for all different tribes as well. You think of Ehud's from Benjamin, the smallest tribe where Deborah was from Ephraim and Gideon from Manasseh. So they're all from different tribes because these were regional problems. And now Jericho's controlled by the people, the Moabites. And I have here a list of four things that caused the regression with Israel. We've already alluded to some of this, but first of all, they tolerated the enemy. They tolerated the enemy. Second of all, they took tribute from the enemy, took taxes from them. Well, we'll keep these people alive and we'll take, we'll take taxes from them. Third, they mixed with the enemy. And what happened was when they mixed with the enemy, they began to marry them, yoke up with them. And then finally, they surrendered to them. That's how it happens. Sin's just, it's like leprosy. It's very hard to spot. And you don't really realize it's a problem in your life till it's taken over everything. And so they, they started out small and just saying, well, you know, we'll be okay with these people. We'll, we'll find a way to get along with them. But we know that, that they ended up giving in to them. And that, that's a big problem today in our lives as well. We yoke with unbelievers. I had a, a relative of mine call me a few years back, said, hey, Dan, can I talk to you about something? Sure. And we talked. He said, I went into business with a guy who's not a Christian. And he said, I've lost almost everything because of him. He stole a lot of money. He did the wrong things in business, and it's really cost me. And he's not a Christian. You know, you know I didn't want to say I told you so because I'd never talked to him about it before, but I knew that the Bible warns against being unequally yoked. A lot of people are yoked up with people who are unbelievers. We're told not to do that. And so the children of Israel did that. And we know that Eglon did that, and uh, God strengthened him. Or Eglon, I mean the children of Israel, and God strengthened Eglon, and he took over. He took over. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Boy, that's a tough consequence, isn't it? 18 years they were servants, slaves of the people they once controlled. Remember, it says when they were strong, what did they do? They took tribute, made people work for money. It's sort of like when Egypt controlled Israel, remember, for 430 years. But the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger, and eventually God enabled them to leave. But here it's the reverse of that. Israel, for 18 years, they're slaves. And you know, when you give in to the enemy, you become a slave to sin. And some of you today may be a slave to sin. Now, if you're lost, you're definitely a slave to sin. You're a slave to sin. You, you, you sin because you're a natural man. You're not a spiritual man. You're a natural man. But some of you are carnal men. You're believers, but you're living a life of carn carnality fleshly, and you're given into sin by choice. Romans 6 says, you know, I like to say God's liberty bell is not cracked. Romans 6 says we're free, but we have to learn to yield ourselves 
to the new man rather than the old. Because you have two natures in you, old and new. And the old guy wants to do the bad stuff, and if you're not careful, you're a slave to that old man. You don't have to be because you're saved. You can live a life of freedom from sin. You don't have to be controlled by sin. You choose to. You know why we sin? Because it feels good. It's fun. For a temporary time, sin is fun, and it feels good. I know in my own life I joke about my battles with the old man. And I battled all week with him. I battled yesterday. I battle all the time with old Dan. If I'm not careful, old Dan will control new Dan for a while during the day. And, and we are slaves to sin because we choose to give in to our old nature, our old master. So here, Eglon's alliance, and then we have Ehud's assassination. Pretty gruesome portion of Scripture. Look at verse 15. In verse 15, it says, But the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, and so redundant, and the Lord raised them up a deliverer, that's the word judge, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite. So after 18 years, remember, God raised this Eglon, this Moabite king up, and made them slaves. Now God raises Ehud up. And the Bible said, He's a, he, Ehud here, the Bible says he's a left-handed man. Chapter 20 talks about Israel having an army of 700 left-handed men, probably ambidextrous, skilled warriors. And they would keep their knife on the opposite side of, uh, of the other warriors because they're left-handed. And so he raises Ehud up. Now Ehud's going to deliver Israel. And he gives him a two-edged sword, a cubit in length. Now a cubit's about 18 inches. It went from the elbow to the end of the hand, and Jewish people were smaller people than I. It'd be a pretty big uh, uh, dagger uh, by that standard, but it was about 18 inches. And so he had a, he had a two-edged sword, 18 inches long. Do you know the Bible says the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword? Do you know we have a weapon? Do you know why you give in to defeat? Because you don't read your Bible. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word. You don't read your Bible, and that is your greatest weapon. Reading it, memorizing it, quoting it. This morning, I was on my stationary riding, and I was trying to pray, and my ADD mind was going in all different directions. And I realized I wasn't concentrating while I was praying. And you know what I had to do? I had to quote some Scripture. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Gird up the loins of my mind. Find ye brethren or whatsoever things. And I quoted that verse, Philippians 4.8. And then I was able to have a little better prayer time. I wasn't daydreaming so much. And we depend, we need to depend on Scripture. That's our two-edged sword. And the Bible says that sword's so sharp it actually can discern your thoughts and intentions and even divide your soul and spirit. So the Word of God is really a powerful sword, the most powerful sword there is. Sometimes someone will grab my Bible and I'll joke and say, be careful, it's sharp. Careful, it's sharp. And this is sharp. This, this word cuts. And so here we have a sword. Well, here's Ehud. He's got this 18-inch sword. You know, God uses a lot of irregulars. I mean, God's army is full of irregulars. Here's Eglon, a left-handed guy you don't even hear of. First time you hear him is right here. 
And God has a lot of irregulars in his army. I'm in his army, and I'm an irregular. I think of Matthew. He worked for the IRS. The tax man. Peter was on that show, Wicked Tuna. He's a fisherman. I mean, God uses all of us, and we're irregular. None of us were really born just to be soldiers necessarily. We're all unique, and yet God finds a way to use us. So God chooses Ehud. He's got this dagger hid under his raiment on his right side. And the Bible says, and he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. Remember, remember uh, Eli? The Bible said he was a big fat guy too, and his sons were wicked, and, and he was a priest, and his sons were sinning, and the Bible said he fell off his chair and it broke his neck because he was a fat guy. Here's another fat guy. That's what the Bible says. He, the Bible says Eglon was a very fat man. So he's, he's a fat guy, and, and uh, he's, he's a big guy, and, and the Bible said Israel wanted to give a present. Look back at verse 15. The children of Israel wanted to send a present to Eglon, the king of Moab. So Ehud comes along with this entourage of people, and they go in to see him, and they're going to give him a present. And they give him a present, and Ehud goes in with them, then, then he had says, let's leave, and he kind of ushers them ahead of him, and they'll go back towards the house, and he gets down to Gilgal where all the idols are on display there, and he thinks, now's my chance. And he turns around, he goes back alone, and says, I, I want to see the king, I have a present for him. And, and the Bible said the king thought he was going to get a present. The Bible said he turned himself away in verse 19, and then he went back and said, I have a secret errand unto the old king, and, and, and O king, who said, keep silent, and all that stood by, he sent them out. So the, the king's in his summer part of the next verse says, he's chilling, and Ehud comes back. He says, I have a, a present, a, a secret thing for the king. And he goes in, and he takes his 18-inch dagger, and he rams it in the guy's gut, in the lower part of his gut. And the Bible said he was so fat that the fat of his body completely covered the handle. So he stuck the blade in, and the fat just kind of absorbed the blade. Is that gross? And then the Bible said the dirt came out. And that Hebrew word really literally means crotch. And we presume it has to do with all his poop coming out, and maybe his guts. A disgusting mess. Ehud is a delivery man, all right. He drives that knife way up in this guy's gut, in his lower gut, and all that ugh, comes out. Now, if you study the children of Israel, they were great warriors. They could take a knife and run it under your rib cage, up into your heart in one motion. They were so good with knives. They have a curved knife, they just right up into your heart, right up under your ribs. And you'll read about where they stab people under the number of ribs, it'll say, and, and they'll kill them instantly. And so he did this. He, he had a big target because <laughs> this guy was a fat guy. So, I mean, he just rammed that thing in there and killed him. And it, it's so gross, but, but it needed to be done. Remember the story of Cleopatra? She was bitten by a poisonous viper that somebody had put in flowers and delivered to her. Same type of thing. He comes back. He's got a hidden dagger. They just give him a present. Well, this one guy's come back. King wants to talk to you. Oh, send him on in. It's been 18 years. The guards no doubt let their guard down. Weren't expecting something like this. But he goes and he puts an end to that king. 
I like verse 16. But Ehad made him a dagger. And he, 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 he snuck it in to kill the king, whose Bible says is a big guy. Then in verse 20, he was in his summer parlor alone, and he had said, I have a message from God. And he had put his left hand and took the dagger by his right hand and his right thigh off his right thigh and thrust it in his belly so that the haft also went in after the blade and the fat closed up on the blade, verse 22, so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly and the dirt came out. And he had went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. So he went and locked the door. Those oriental doors had a round hole, and you can read in Song of Solomon where it says, my beloved put his hand in the hole. And they had a hole, and they had a piece of wood they'd slide over to lock it. And they had a string they could pull it if they were on the outside. Well, no doubt, when he had killed Eglon, he pulled that string on the inside so nobody would get the door open. He locked it up. He went out the backside of the summer parlor off the porch, and he escaped. And by the time they found the king, he was already in the, in the, in the woods between Mount Gilgal and, and a long ways away anyway. Uh, he was quite a ways away. So here in verse 23, he shut the doors, he left, he was gone, the servants came. We saw the doors were locked. They thought surely he covered their feet. They thought here the king's doing number two. That's what it means to cover your feet. They drop the robes down and sitting down to use a restroom. And they waited, and they waited a long time. Now he's gone. And finally, they're so embarrassed, the Bible says. In uh, the next verse, it says they were ashamed, verse 25, because he didn't open the doors. And they bound a key, and they opened the door, and he's dead, falling down dead. So what a gruesome story. Back up to verse 15. And the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud. Did you know this was God's plan? This gross story. I read commentators and they say, well, you know, he's, he's a, a, you know, a, a hero and some say he's a goat and, you know, this was gruesome and, and they say different things about him. All the commentators I read all talk about him in a different way. Some say this wasn't of God and some say it was and there's a lot of comments on, you know, whether he's clever, bold, resourceful, or sinful. But the bottom line, the Bible said God raised him up. And it had to be done. You know, I, I hate to say that I, that I love this, but I, I love it when, it when we took out one of the Iranian leaders a while back. Sometimes we have to do these things that are acts of war. And, and it's important to do that. Now, the Bible said God doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. But sometimes, from a military perspective, we have to defeat our enemies. And so this was of God, believe it or not. This was God's plan to deal with their bondage. Then he gets back. He's in these mountains, in, the, in, the, in, the, in between two mountains in the wilderness. Verse 26, the geography lets us know that. It says, verse 27, it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mount, and he before them. And he said unto them, Follow me, act, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So he blows a trumpet. And he shouts, and the children of Israel come down and meet with them, and they're going to go in now and defeat the Midianites. The Bible said they blocked all the bridges and the escape pathways, and I'm paraphrasing, and they went in there and defeated And The Bible says here they killed 10,000 of their Mighty men, 10,000 of them, lusty men it calls them, big men. 
And then it says Israel had peace for 80 years. You know, one day, the Lord's going to step out and there's going to be a trumpet. And we're going to be delivered from this world of bondage. I can't wait till Jesus comes. I can't wait till that trumpet sounds, man. That's going to be something. And the Lord says, it's time for victory. And he takes us up to heaven. One day a trumpet's going to sound. And we won't be prisoners of this sinful world anymore. And we won't be prisoners of our own sinful body anymore. We'll be out of this body, absent from this body. And the next time we see this body be raised and changed, the Bible says. I'm looking forward to that trumpet. One day it's going to sound and we'll be gone. And so we have here Ehud's assassination and finally Yahweh's annihilation of the enemy. Look at verse 28. Follow me, he says, and what does it say? It says in the second line, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies and God did that. God did that. What a, what a great story. And Israel had peace for 80 years. You know what? When you yield to the Word of God and you yield to the Spirit of God, you're going to have peace within. Did you know that? You know, my, my prayer life has improved greatly in the last quite a few years. You know, I can have peace no matter what's going on in my life. When I spend that time in prayer, when I have anxiety, I can just pray. And when I read my Bible, it gives me the assurance that everything's okay. That inner peace is worth it all. If you're not a believer and your life's in turmoil, you need peace with God. And it only comes from the Prince of Peace, who will give you peace if you yield to Him. He'll give you victory. He'll give you freedom. You don't have to live a life of sin anymore. He'll give you that victory because He's a victorious God. Jesus Christ is the captain of our army, and He is victorious. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the fact that when we are in sin, we can call for a deliverer, and Jesus Christ paid our sin debt. And if we're submissive and obedient and yield to him, we won't yield to sin. Lord, if there's anybody here who's a slave to sin, I pray they come and trust Jesus Christ today, the Savior of the world, the Savior of sin. And Lord, if there's a Christian who's yielding to sin because he chooses to, help them to realize they're going to eventually be in trouble. And Lord, when you chasten us, it's not fun, but the Bible says it's grievous. And Lord, I don't want to be chastened. I want to live for you. Help us to take the sword of the Spirit and to slay our enemy, to memorize it and quote it and read it and search the Scriptures, Lord, so we can have that peace. It only comes from you. Bless now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.